Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. Coming up, Linda Yu, the economist, broadcaster, writer, and friend of the show, joins us to discuss her latest book, The Great Crashes, Lessons from Global Meltdowns and How to Prevent Them. Joining Linda in conversation is Jesse Norman, someone who thinks about the economy and how it works every day as part of his work. He's Minister of State for Decarbonisation and Technology in the UK government, and he's also written his own book about the father of modern economics, Adam Smith, too. This episode was recorded live and online on the 31st of May 2023. Let's join Jesse Norman and Linda Yu now. Well, thank you very much indeed, uh, Connor, and thank you, ladies and gentlemen. What an absolute delight it is to be able to talk to Linda Yu. Uh, Linda is uh, somewhat needs no introduction, but let me give her one anyway. Economist, broadcaster, writer, fellow of economics at uh, Teddy Hall, St. Edmund Hall in, at Oxford, uh, and uh, an adjunct professor of economics at the London Business School, uh, but also as as you will be aware, uh, the author of some fantastic books, most notably The Great Economists, a Times Best Business Book of 2018, and now The Great Crashes, Lessons from Global Meltdowns and How to Prevent Them. So that's fantastic, Linda. Welcome and welcome to Intelligence Squared Plus. Thank you so much, Jesse. Uh, absolute pleasure to be here with you. Uh, so, uh, um, fantastic book. I loved it. Absolutely, really gripping and fun. Can I just start by just asking you a little bit about how you think about this phenomenon, which we all are aware of, and we all have to live, we still have to live with the aftermath of them. Uh, uh, you know, what is a, how should we think about a, a crash? How should we think about a financial crisis? And how do you think about them? It's a great question to start. And I, well, firstly, unfortunately, we all have become just slightly too familiar with financial crises. They can take many forms. Uh, they could be a stock market crash. It could be a housing market crash. And the worst of the crashes are actually banking crises. And I write about a number of 10 great crashes and a number of crises can actually be um, several crises. So for instance, um, the housing crash in the United States in 2008 um, that led to a banking crisis. The Asian financial crisis of the late 1990s uh, was actually a uh, currency crisis and a sovereign debt crisis. So there's no one description, but generally, I think the definition that I've used is the great crashes are the ones that have caused misery for people by leading to a recession and causing people to lose their livelihoods and 
those are the ones that I focus on. So one has to make choices, so I don't cover um, every crash, but the 10 that I pick um, had a pretty significant uh, impact on society. And so therefore, I don't pick, I don't write about some crashes like uh, Black Monday in October 1987, which was then the biggest one-day crash of the stock market, but it did lead to a recession. So I write about the ones that led to a recession. So I write about the dot-com uh, bubble, which burst, which led to a recession in the early 2000s. So in my case, great. Um, I think the way the economists use great is that it's not great and good. It's great as insignificant. So great crashes, great depression, <laughs> great recession. Um, so these, this is how I identify them. And I think importantly, um, because these had such an effect on society, um, you know, there are lessons to be learned from them. And that's what I hope to do in this book, which is to look at the fact that unfortunately, um, where there's boom, there will be bust. Um, but we can prevent a financial crisis or try to prevent it from becoming a global meltdown. Yes. And so one of the things that's so nice about the book is that, uh, you, you, as it were, you, you have lessons and you have categories by which to think of these great crashes, but we also go into the detail. So you're telling a story of the largely the recent history. Of course, you talk about the great crash as well and others, but 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 largely the recent history. And of course, anyone who's grown up in the last 20, 25 years will have a memory of an awful lot of what you're talking about in the secondary banking crisis, you know, in the, uh, the late 1990s, uh, all the way through to the pandemic and, of course, the dot-com crash, as you say, as well. Um, the Great Crashes is itself a rather brilliant title because it picks up Galbraith's book, The Great Crash of 1929. And uh, and indeed, you, you start with that. But can we ask a question, which is, uh, as it were, how you think? So one of the ways in which you set up the discussion is to talk about a first generation, a second generation, and a third generation. How, how Play that out for us, and then that'll help our, our listeners to get oriented in, in the discussion that you've been leading. Oh, thanks very much, Jesse. And, uh, you know, just a plug for Galbraith's book. Um, my uh, book actually picks up where his leaves off. And so he writes about um, centuries of crashes leading up to 1929. And my book picks up the last near century. Uh, Galbraith had this saying, which is, you can find my book in all good bookshops, except those at the airport, because it's called The Great Crashes. <laughs> <laughs> so, and it is also, let's be clear, an incredibly funny and lively and engaging, as as well as quite a profound book in its own way. So, it's a fitting counterpart to what you've written. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so, I start the book off uh, with the lessons that we drew from the 1929 Great Crash, which actually remain with us. And this is where Mark Twain is right um, when he said, um, "History doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme." So every crash that I write about, the 10 great crashes, um, each have their own individual traits, but I draw out the commonalities in every crash, and um, those are where we can draw some lessons from. So the first phase is around euphoria. The second phase is around uh, resolving the crisis. Um, you need credible policies. And then the third part is the aftermath, which is determined by the first two. So we can uh, talk a bit about that in um, after I introduce the uh, the three generations of currency crisis. So the reason I start 
um, that, uh, the book with that uh, chapter is because the 1929 Great Crash was actually followed in the post-war period by um, relatively calm um, financial markets in the 50s and 60s. It was actually known as the golden age of growth because that was the strongest period of average income growth that, um, that we had seen. There was high levels of equality. But then what happened in the 1970s and 80s? And the financial crisis that I write about starts in the early 1980s. The 1970s was characterized by the internationalization of financial markets, meaning money can move quickly between interlinked markets. And unfortunately, it also led to an internationalization of financial crises. So I start by looking at the first generation currency crisis that triggered, which was the Latin America crisis in 1980, 1981. The second generation crisis moved to Europe. Um, so that was the European exchange rate mechanism crisis, the UK faced alongside other European countries in 1992. The third generation crisis was the Asian financial crisis. And that was around 1998. And that became, because of the speed of contagion, an emerging markets crisis that then spread to uh, Russia, Turkey, Brazil, and Argentina, which led to the biggest bailout up to that point, which was of Argentina. So the commonality across these crises is if speculators don't believe that your exchange rate is credible, um, they will attack it. Um, so in the first generation crisis, um, the economic fundamentals of the Latin American countries, they were just running very large deficits, making it very hard to maintain a currency peg credibly. So, um, you know, the crisis just hastened the demise of an unrealistic currency peg. The European exchange rate mechanism crisis was different in that it's known as a self-fulfilling crisis. Um, so this is when George Soros broke the Bank of England. Um, he made a billion um, from shorting uh, sterling because he did not believe that the UK government and the Bank of England would prioritize maintaining a peg to the Deutschmark, um, which meant interest rates had to rise because German reunification was fueled by expansionary monetary policy when the UK was facing a recession. So raising interest rates to 12% and 15% would have had a serious dampening effect on the economy. And indeed, that's indeed what happened. Um, interest rates went up to 15%. Sweden raised theirs to 500%. It could have gone further, but the British government didn't do that. came out of the ERM um, that evening, and actually the UK had a very strong 1990s. And that's where the credibility lesson comes in, because emerging markets that I described were rescued, whereas the UK had strong institutions. So after a crisis, it and other European countries actually um, recovered fairly well. And then just quickly in the Asian financial crisis, that was similar to the first generation crisis because it's emerging markets with one big difference. It was actually a domestic uh, crony capitalism, um, you know, just uh, unsustainable borrowing from abroad. So the currency wasn't the target. The currency was the casualty. As investors moved their money, so hot money out of those Asian countries, it caused the collapse of the exchange rate. And so that's why it's called the Asian financial crisis. But the lesson there is, again, external indebtedness, credibility, and the big lesson, which was has only now accelerated 
as we move from the late 1990s into the 21st century is the speed of contagion. Yes. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Yes. Well, that's that I think comes out very well. So in other words, uh, by the way, if anyone's interested in crony capitalism, it's worth just saying, I think I was one of the first people to use the phrase. There's a paper on my jessenorman.com website in case anyone's interested. Um, but which we I'll try and see if I can post on the in the in the chat. But on this issue of internationalization, because I think it lies at the core of the discussion in many ways. Um uh, I, I suppose the 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 point just to draw out is that you got in you got contagion between or interlinking between markets within countries the financial markets the real estate market uh, the wider economy of a, of a nation then you have the internationalization ultimately the globalization of those relationships and thereby contagion but because you also have a lot of cash swilling around the world looking for a home and chasing yield, you then get these extra effects of magnitude, much greater impact when it happens, and speed of contagion. Is that a fair summary, do you think, Linda? Yeah. So one of the conclusions that I draw from all of that is if you have internationalized financial markets, you have money moving very quickly and even faster now because of digital, uh, the ability to move money digitally, um, confidence is hugely important and credibility of the regulatory regime is really important. And perhaps even more important is if crises are internationalized, then the resolution of them also have to be international. There must be global coordination. And that is actually what we saw since the early 1980s. You see the establishment of global bodies, um, you know, like the, uh, the body that set the Basel Standard, the Financial Stability Forum, which became the FSB, uh, swap lines between central banks, um, a much more active role from the International Monetary Fund. So the solution also has to be global. Yes, yes. I mean, one of the things that's really interesting in the book is that actually, although we're, we've been talking about the 80s and 90s, uh, of course, a lot of this derives from the 70s. It derives from the creation of the euro dollar markets and 
the oil price crash, the collapse of Bretton Woods. Could you just talk a little bit about, about why that gave birth to the what some people would see as a kind of unrestrained monster in the form of this financial market expansion? And and I, I it's hard not to remember that um, famous line. You know that that you know if you think about the actual sources of opposition inside the country, you know, the bond market weighs way weighs in way above the official opposition to any government, and there's a degree of truth in that as well. Indeed. Um, so, uh, so one of the reasons why the 50s and 60s were fairly stable was that uh, the world was essentially on a fixed exchange rate, you know, pegged to the dollar, which is convertible to gold at a set rate. So what had happened um, was increasingly the offshore uh, dollar market began to develop, known as the euro dollar market, and the UK actually um, became an international financial center in this area. It had always been an international financial center, but in the area of currency and trading, um, the UK played a big role in that. So when the US um, central bank looks at controlling its money supply, um, its exchange rate, if more and more of the currency lies outside of its borders, then it's actually much harder uh, to manage the money supply. So uh, the gold standard uh, essentially collapsed when um, the U.S. took the dollar. Um, it led to the collapse of the Bretton Woods system, which was what it was known as. And the U.S. Treasury Secretary said at the time, um, the dollar is our currency, but your problem. <laughs> John Connolly, was it? <laughs> yeah, hugely sympathetic, right? Yes. Very uh, uh, characteristic uh, Texan bluntness, perhaps, to the... Uh, yeah. yeah, there was yes. a truth in that. So... Yeah. So this growth of the offshore um, market meant that uh, financial markets um, essentially started to trade each other on a more flexible basis. And that's the world that advanced economies largely operated in after trying to, uh, you know, I, I was about to say try and find an equilibrium, but we know in Europe, it led to the creation um, eventually of a precursor to the euro and then to the euro itself, because European countries are still looking for a fixed rate of exchange. So, but for the most part, that ability to move money overseas, the ability to trade overseas, currencies overseas, and deal with currencies overseas, contributed to the globalization of financial markets. And that's when a crisis in one country can spread very quickly to another country. Yeah. So there's a kind of mania for control on the political side because people feel they're accountable to their electors to deliver certain outcomes, and they can't do that if the mechanisms are held in the international financial markets. But so you can see sitting that behind the kind of the, the different forms of euro currency mechanism, but also the rather more reputable, in some respects, ambition to set uh, a financial and economic framework sufficiently sound and safe to be predictable against which normal business activity can take place. Yes, indeed. Um, so it's mirrored in the, um, the liberalization, the opening up of financial markets domestically. So think about 1986, the big bang in the city. So that's an example, which is also um, uh, seen in other countries. And so the biggest casualties um, of, uh, there's lots of casualties whenever you have a change in system. Mm. Um, but this was literally uh, one of the contributing factors to the U.S. SNL savings and loan crisis of the 1980s, which yes. up until that point was actually the biggest banking crash in U.S. history um, after the uh, 1930s Great Depression, when 
you know, swathes of the banking system were shut down. So the opening up of uh, banking systems uh, meant that the model, so SNLs think of them as building societies. Remember, if you've ever seen the movie, It's a Wonderful Life with Jimmy Stewart, he plays somebody who uses his honeymoon funds to save a local building society, savings and loan, um, from the grasps of a robber baron because this SNL is providing mortgages to the local community. He stays married, by the way, throughout the movie, just in case anybody is wondering. It all ends um, okay. It's and, all okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yet, fast forward to the 1980s, um, their model was seriously under strain because of the opening up of the banking system. So the model the SNLs were working under is known as the 363 model. They take in deposits, they pay 3% interest. They lend out mortgages, um, which earn them 6% interest, and they can all be on the golf course by 3 p.m. However, <laughs> well, hold on a second. Is that better or worse than them all having ideas and investing in junk bonds? <laughs> it's exactly what I was going to get to. So the the opening up and the pressures of the 1970s and 80s meant that um, you know oil price shocks, interest rates are going up, commercial banks could lend mortgages. They were competing for their deposits as well, and savings loans really struggled. So they were deregulated to some extent. And um, because they were holding uh, federally insured deposits, um, if they hadn't um, taken risks, they probably would have gone under. So, um, you know, they went for broke and many of them just went broke. So you went from the safe building society to thinking we could rescue ourselves. This model isn't working. Um, And they started taking risky bets on commercial real estate. And they even dealt in junk bonds. And so the movie that characterizes this the best is actually... Wall Street, made in the 1980s, where uh, Gordon Gecko, played by Michael Douglas, um, he's known for saying the phrase, greed is good. His character was actually based on a composite, including Michael Milken, who was eventually jailed and known as the junk bond king for his peddling of junk bonds that SNLs bought, um, hoping to give themselves a lifeline. So going from Jimmy Stewart to Gordon Gecko kind of captures what happened um, in the SNL crisis. And there is a parallel to today because at least one SNL failed in each of the 50 United States. But these were smallish banks. These were not the, you know, what we now call too big to fail, the financial, big financial institutions. So if you think about the current U.S. mid-tier banking crisis, in which about three or four banks got in trouble and were rescued, um, depending on uh, how it plays out, just because of its size doesn't necessarily mean there isn't a slow burn crisis there. And one of the other lessons from the SNL crisis was, of course, you know, the obvious one, which is everyone thought that, you know, um, especially commercial real estate, the oil price boom in Texas and, you know, the South, you know, prices can only go up. So it's very euphoric um, coming back to the first phase. Yes. When the euphoria is funded by debt and the bubble bursts, that's when you have a real crisis. So resolving it requires credible policies. But it took until 1990 when President uh, George Bush um, was able to essentially recapitalize the savings and loans and resolve the ones um, that had failed. Um, It didn't work before because so many had failed. They bankrupted the deposit insurance uh, provider. Um, that's how many had gone under. 
And so that meant this crisis dragged on into the 1990s. And that's another lesson, which is you need to be credible and you need to be fast. The International Monetary Fund says that the first 10 months are crucial. So the SNL crisis lasted for years. The worst example of this, by the way, is the Japan crash. Um, the IMF says if you take more than four years, you're kind of in trouble. Japan took eight years, and they ended up with three decades of lost growth. Yeah, and still in, in living with the aftermath. Uh, of course, as I recall, uh, in the 1980s, there was also a lot of insider trading, and one particular villainous character who I think also played a part in that composite, Gordon Gecko, was a character called Ivan Bosky, who um, was an insider trader and arbitrageur. And it was proven in court that he had received uh, tip-offs from a man called Marty Siegel at Kid of Peabody with, uh, uh, with, the, with the famous line, so Marty would call him up and say, Ivan, let's meet for coffee. And let's meet for coffee became code for uh, the passage of, of insider trading. So there was a lot of skullduggery. And of course, those, those Drexel folks must have thought they had, you know, Christmas had come or indeed the Hanukkah had come early. Um, when they went out to Lincoln, Nebraska and places like that to see some of these SNLs, because this was very undemanding, unsophisticated money in large quantities being pointed at the you know hyper-sharp wheeler dealers of Drexel, Burnham, Lambert. So interesting, very, very interesting, and kind of sociologically in some respects tragic moment. But one of the things that comes out of that, very interestingly, is how government changes in regulation by the US government made the original SNL crisis much worse because no one wanted to admit to how bad it was at that particular time. And then changes made, I think it's fair to say, under the Clinton administration, then contributed to the fragility of the American uh, financial system when the, when the big crash happened in 2007 and 2008. So government, particularly, in the, I think, dare one say, in the US, has quite a lot to answer for in that area as well, both at the state and the federal level. Mm. And there's a parallel to the current U.S. banking crisis, which is these mid-tier banks weren't subject to the same degree of regulation as the big banks. And it turns out that um, when all their deposits were rescued, it was uh, systemic. It's the old Venetian joke, every bank is systemic to someone. Yeah. So, you know, the 1980s, um, indeed, um, this is another lesson, by the way, that I draw out in the book, which is, um, there's lots of things that uh, you can try and um, regulate, but uh, there's just nothing you can do about outright fraud. Or in the case of the SNL crisis, uh, bribery. So Charles Keating was a famous figure also from that time. He bribed yes. five U.S. senators, including the astronaut John Glenn and future presidential candidate uh, John McCain, who later said it was the worst mistake of his life. And um, when asked about it, uh, Charles Keating, who owned uh, Lincoln um, SNL, as you mentioned, Lincoln, Nebraska, there, um, the press said, you know, um, you know, what are you what are you doing talking to these senators? And apparently he said, well, I would hope my bribes for, you know, to them would help them rescue my savings, which is providing local jobs. So it was a bit of a crazy period. So um you know, but, but, you know, so again, Mark Twain, right? History doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And the fraud cases you can see throughout history, you know, Bernie Madoff recently. Um, but, but also going back to the 1930s, Charles Ponzi. So we all know about Ponzi schemes. So it's named after a Boston banker named Charles Ponzi, who in the 1920s 
um, he would sell you an IOU and pay you, Jesse, 45% interest against a measly 2 to 3% interest you would earn in a bank. How did he do this? He said he was arbitraging postal reply coupons, uh, whatever that meant. <laughs> and, um, and you could take your money or you could earn interest on your interest, you know, 45%. So people left their money with him, and this Ponzi scheme lasted for 18 months. He went to prison, and when he came out of prison, um, he uh, had some land to sell you in Florida. Yeah, right. So the famous old Milton Berle joke, great news from my estate agent in Florida, they've discovered land on my property. And so it's got that, <laughs> got that, same, that same feel about it. Okay, so, so you've talked very eloquently, brilliantly, about... about the need for speed and credibility in the intervention on as it were on the upside let's talk a little bit about some of the some of the the other causes i mean and what happens when governments fail to do things one of the things that i don't think you mentioned i could see but was was very very much a feature of the of the vickers commission when it looked into the banking crisis and the financial crisis in the uk was how bank leverage had exploded after the year 2000. And that had created a very unstable wider banking culture so that when suddenly uh, this very unstable structure was hit by an external event, it fell over much more quickly and much more catastrophically than it should have done. And the numbers that the Vickers Commission had, I think are incredibly pregnant because they're the best one sentence description of why the problem occurred that I know. And, and um, it, it, they are that that the British banking system had a leverage of twenty times uh, equity for from from forty for forty years in 1960, 1970, 1980, 1990, two thousand, and in between the year two thousand to the year two thousand seven, that twenty times leverage went up to fifty times. So you're operating on minuscule levels of equity. And therefore, people tend to be taking, and very often, I'm afraid, people in the tops of banks are taking decisions about uh, lending or, in some cases, investing, which are based on growing the size of their bank and therefore potentially their bonus income rather than what you might call sound banking principles. And this created that. But I think that catastrophic, just personally, my own comment would be that catastrophic increase in debt made it almost inevitable that when that the banking crisis actually struck in with Northern Rock and then with RBS and ultimately with HBOS and other banks, it was going to be absolute, not just bad, but catastrophic. Yes. Um, so the Vickers Commission um, by my colleague at Oxford, led by my colleague at Oxford, John Vickers. And I suppose um, I was appointed uh, by the Treasury to the independent review panel of the Vickers Commission. Oh, were you? On, was that? uh, That's yeah. very interesting. <laughs> So that uh, was from uh, the panel uh, concluded in uh, March of 2022. That so was looking at whether the ring fencing that they recommended was working or the other recommendations. Yes. And proprietary trading. Oh, very and yeah. um, so we looked at the whole um, system. And, you know, and yes, absolutely. So one of the lessons that I draw is leverage is um, a measure of debt. And any time you have very low interest rates, which is what happened after the dot-com bubble, mm. and this is the other lesson from history, mm. the solution for the last crisis can often contribute to the next yes. one. Yes, yes. So, and this is sort of like closing the stable doors after the horses have bolted. Um, but that's much more a comment on, you know, regulators 
do find it challenging to keep ahead of financial innovation. So I think both of those two traits are challenges. So when you have a huge amount of uh, cost of capital is low, um, asset prices are high, fueled by increasing amounts of leverage, so debt fueling those bubbles, um, that's the recipe from turning a bubble into a massive bust because that's what can drag down um, the banking system. So what's one of the regulatory lessons learned um, in the since the um, global financial crisis is that regulators will now lean against the wind. So they'll lean against the bubble if it is fueled by too much debt. So they now have leverage ratios put into place. Yep. Macroprudential tools, which is um, a mouthful, but basically it tries to um, look at how much um, uh, you can use things like limiting loan-to-value ratios to lean against, say, a housing bubble. And these, this is actually a change for central bankers because, um, you know, that um, this saying, um, this actually comes from 1955 from the then U.S. central banker. Um, he said, who wants to be the one who takes away the punch bowl when the party's getting started? So now they will take away the punch bowl. And when Alan Greenspan was contemplating this during the period of irrational exuberance, which is coined during the run-up to the dot-com bubble that burst in 2000, he said, how can you tell if it's a fundamental increase or if it's a bubble? And the feeling then was exactly what it had been half a century earlier, which is you let the bubble burst and you deal with the consequences because you just don't know. Yes. But now the new set of tools will lean against the bubble and keep a close eye on leverage ratios and the amount of debt because ultimately, if you bring down the banks, the worst aftermaths of crises, whatever the cause, is if there are bank failures, then those lead to the deepest recessions, the highest increase in unemployment and the worst outcomes for people. Right. So the paradox is, you know, you're going to get a, a crisis at some point in the future. Uh, you don't know where it's going to come from. You can be right. an old joke that you made about the French after the failure of the Maginot Line, always preparing for the previous war. Um, you, you can be rationally certain that the, that the latest tools, including presumably the macroprudential tools that you've discussed and leaning in, are going to be insufficient because the crisis is breaking anyway. And so the question then makes it impossible to predict, but how can you know? An overall measure of resilience and prudence in the economy turns out to be a maxims-based approach rather than a, a gameable, purely numerical approach turns out to be a much more prudent way of running a system. And of course, how much more so, I suppose, is it difficult for Britain with its enormous financial sector relative to its, the size of its economy versus versus uh, America. Why don't we go to the, the really sobering and interesting question that you pose at the end of the book, uh, Linda, which is, I mean, I'd love to ask about QE, maybe we come back to that later, but um, and what you think the effects of that are and would be, and also fairness and equity. Why is it that the bankers all seem to make out, you know, we socialize the losses and the gains get taken by someone else uh, privately. But the question I think you end on really pregnantly and interestingly is, is China. Can you just give us a little bit of your analysis of China, where you think the problem could come from, how resilient it will be in, and the world economy will be in dealing with it? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I was given advice as a young economist um, to either predict an outcome or the time frame, but never both. 
So if you think that the next crash or the next next crash could be China, you can write about it, but don't give a time frame because chances are there'll be another crash in the meantime. It's going to make you look stupid. You you will get poor before the markets decide what they're going to do. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But the reason I write about China is because it shares the traits that are early warning signs for a crisis. So a euphoric belief in China's case that house prices can only go up fueled by huge amounts of debt, um, and a policymaking process that they've had a couple of smallish crises, which casts doubt on the efficacy, so the credibility of the, um, the regulatory regime uh, to even deal with a stock market crash, which is uh, what I write about from 2015. Yes. And then the aftermath. Um, so um, China, of course, will be different than other crashes. Um, But the aftermath I'm actually most worried about is the impact on the rest of the world's specifically developing countries. Mm. So China is the world's biggest official lender. It lends more than the World Bank, than the IMF, than the 22 rich countries that make up the Paris Club. Out of 185 lending jurisdictions, China's banks lend to 175. And you see it has the world's largest financial system as well. Yeah. So if China were to have a banking banking crisis... Um, the it could trigger um, a a global meltdown for developing countries, and because of U.S.-China tensions, um, the scope for cooperation isn't as you know isn't as obvious as it would have been perhaps um, you know between the U.S. and Europe. When I write about the uh, U.S. subprime crisis, the Euro crisis, yeah. there was a lot of coordination. So that's why I write about um, China because I think it is one where. It's a hard economy to understand in many ways, but the impact, unfortunately, could make it a global meltdown. And and China is overdue for a crisis because it has the rare distinction of never having had a serious crisis in four decades. Mm. You know, they say there are only two certain things in life, death and taxes. Mm. I would add a third, unfortunately, financial crises. Yes. So China, you know, we shouldn't be surprised if it has one. We can only hope. The lessons from history have been learned, so it's not a global meltdown. Well, we're out of time, but I've got one question that's come in in the last minute from Laura Galicia. So annoying because it's a brilliant question. Let me, I, it may need only a very short answer, but it's worth just asking if I may, Linda, which is this. Um, Gordon Brown famously tried to eradicate boom and bust. Is it possible to navigate a Goldilocks economic equilibrium or a way through all these things, or are we destined because of animal spirits to move between between boom and bust? What, what's your view? Uh, what a brilliant question to end on. Um, it, the answer is we will always have boom and bust, but we can try and make sure the booms are not fueled by too much debt and the busts are resolved quickly, incredibly, and, um, and hopefully the regulators have prevented too much debt from accumulating. And so it's human nature to want to pile in. I described the dot-com bubble, you're just not sure. And we have exactly the same dilemma today. Are the tech companies of today, the AIs, the generative AIs, are these transformative? Are they worth the valuations for semiconductor chip companies? It's really hard to tell. So my advice, and it's a nice way to end this talk, and indeed it's part of the ending of the book, is I sort of, I I give personal tips, which is, um, it's human nature to want to pile in, but try not to do it with so much debt. Because um, if the valuation comes down and prices do come down, um, it's the debt that's going to be the problem. And um, a lot of this, what I'm describing in, in uh, markets, are 
stock markets in particular, but also I think other assets like housing, you know, in, in a lot of ways, this is a paper loss, right? Because markets go up, markets go down. And that's, that's part of what we've seen since Keynes's day of his animal spirits driving investments. Um, but if you, for instance, were to sell your house or take out a lump sum from your pension, you crystallize that loss. It's no longer a paper loss. So take independent advice, um, invest carefully, and don't feel bad if you want to pile in because it's human nature. We've seen it for centuries. Just remember, <laughs> don't do it using too much debt. Well, what a splendidly warm and prudent note on which to end. Thank you very much, uh, Linda, indeed. Um, ladies and gentlemen, uh, you will have heard that uh, Linda and I both have uh, books uh, in the market. Uh, if you want to learn about uh, 17th century um, skullduggery, revenge, intrigue and betrayal, you can buy The Winding Stair. But you, I hope uh, uh, you will rush first out of here to purchase uh, The Great Crashes by Linda Yu, uh, which is available right now from your local bookshop uh, and at all good places online. Uh, and indeed, also, I hope, uh, in uh, aircraft uh, air airports as well. Uh, and so let me thank you again, Linda. What a fabulous conversation. What a brilliant set of answers. What a fantastic book. And um, let me say to everyone who's joined us, thank you. I'm Jesse Norman. You've been watching or listening to Intelligence Squared. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Intelligence Squared. If you'd like to listen ad-free, attend some of our exclusive in-person events, or peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's great minds, then head over to intelligencesquared.com slash membership. The episode was produced by myself, Connor Boyle, with editing from Tom Hall. We'd love to hear your feedback and what you think we should be talking about next, who we should have on, and what our future debates should be. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligencesquared.com or tweet us at intelligence2. 